You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. Let's do it later. Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes. Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Because nope. I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th, hosted by Kevin Hart. The seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Gators Breakdown, the Gators Fan Podcast, because there's never a dull moment in Gator Nation. Gators Breakdown, episode 127, is ready to go. I'm your host, David Waters, and you can find me on Twitter at GatorDave underscore SCC. And joining me tonight, both co-hosts, Bill Sykes and Will Miles. You can find Bill on Twitter at RealBSykes. And Will Miles, the founder of ReadingReaction.com. You can find him on Twitter at WillMilesSEC. And lo and behold, somehow Bill survived the flu. I did, man. I'm back. Back on my feet. <laughs> man, what, what a coincidence that he moves to Florida and all of a sudden he's got the flu. <laughs> Enjoying the water a little bit down there, aren't we, Bill? No, yeah, you know what, man? I there was one day when I just had to get out of the house and I walked across the street to the pond and had to throw a line out, and uh, it was therapeutic. I told you not eat those, <laughs> not to eat those fish out of the St. John's River. <laughs> no, you know I got to feel bad, but then I just spent a couple of days and I went around from like Walgreens to Walgreens getting flu vaccines until I felt better. So. <laughs> well, we, we- we could all tell you felt better once once you started arguing with people about the 1995 Nebraska team. So, uh, <laughs> oh man, I, <laughs> maybe you didn't feel better. Maybe it just worked you up. So that that's what brought you back from the dead, isn't it? Hey, yeah, made, made, hold on, hold on. Made up star rankings matter. <laughs> yeah, I read that article and he was like, "Yeah, I guesstimated these star rankings." This guy was all state. I'm like, "What are you? What?" <laughs> okay, we can't talk too much because that 95 team, you know, of course, kicked you know, kick Florida's tail in the national championship game. But uh, yeah, and, and the children of the corn killed <laughs> all the adults in their town, but it's from like 20 years ago or 30 years ago. So, whatever. Yeah, some people out there may not know what we're talking about, but uh, that was that was some good. That was some you, good talk. You think our that. listeners even know what children of the corn is anymore? I don't know. Probably. It was like it was like the second most famous team in Nebraska. <laughs> <laughs> All you got to do is go back and find Bill's Twitter feed. You'll you'll figure out what we're talking yeah, about. Okay. I saw the article and I didn't even do anything. I just said, I just tagged Bill. I was like, okay, here we go. I, I know what's about to happen here. <laughs> it was fun, man. It was fun. I, I couldn't help myself. Yeah. Well, it was, uh, it, it was definitely funny there uh, seeing the back and forth. Uh, Will, what you got coming up on? Uh, actually, you know, we'll talk about it today. You released an article uh, on readingreaction.com, uh, so we'll definitely get into that. But uh, how's everything going with the site? 
Uh, everything's going great. Lots of engagement, lots of lots of helpful suggestions from people. And uh, I got called a social justice warrior the other day, so that was <laughs> so, so that was entertaining. But uh, you know, during the off season, I got a little bit of freedom to write about some stuff that maybe uh, maybe isn't everybody's cup of tea. But uh, I appreciate people checking it out, and we'll certainly be covering the recruiting uh, both tonight and also on the site as as it moves forward over this next week. Yeah, uh, Bill, how did you uh, how did you deal with uh, following uh, recruiting and all that while uh, under the weather? Well, when I was strong enough to lift my phone, I would try to keep up with it. But in all seriousness, man, I was pretty sick there for a while. But uh, it was kind of cool to be able to kind of follow along. And you know, things are looking up right now as we're going to talk about. There's some positive signs, and you know, th- this is my favorite week of the recruiting year. The week, like right before signing day and and there's some pitfalls of, of being a college football fan and following along with it and trying to keep your finger on the pulse of recruiting. Well, I'll kind of, you know, catch our listeners up to speed tonight on what to look out for and, you know, what tracks to not to avoid as they're kind of following along. But, you know, I had fun and I'm going to have fun this week too. Sounds good. Remember, you can find all your Gators breakdown episodes on SoundCloud, iTunes, Google Play, and YouTube. Search on those sites to get the links by following Gators Breakdown on Twitter and on Facebook at Gators Breakdown. Look, when you're on iTunes and Google Play, please rate and review the show. Let Gator Nation know what they're getting with Gators Breakdown. And I uh, apologize. I had uh, I was trying a new modem out last week and uh, had some audio issues. So uh, hopefully all that's uh, fixed tonight, uh, working on something there. So Everything should be good as far as that goes. But uh, guys, of course, recruiting first and foremost. Plenty of battles going on for the Gators on the recruiting trail. With a week left before National Signing Day, we're following big names out there. Jacob Copeland, Andrew Chatfield, Malcolm Lamar, Richard Garage, and more. But the biggest one out there seems to be the tug of war for Nicholas petit Friere, offensive tackle. Uh, the battle for the five-star continues to go on with him visiting Ohio State this coming up weekend. And as we've mentioned on here before, uh, his school has a um, you know his school has a relationship with uh, Buckeyes defensive coordinator Greg Schiano from his days of coaching the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Uh, we've heard Petit Friere enjoyed his Florida visit last week, as Florida got to sell some proximity uh, and their education reputation to him and his mom. Speaking of education, that's also what has Notre Dame in the picture. So don't forget about Notre Dame; he hasn't visited there since the fall. But it's been reported from many sources that Notre Dame may actually be the team to watch here and not Alabama or Ohio State for competition of uh, getting his signature. Uh, Look, these are the type of battles we want to see Florida in when it comes to recruiting. A big program dealing with other big programs on the trail. Uh, This is a battle of heavyweights for a big-time five-star recruit. Landing this recruit at a position of need sends a message. It's a message that – Florida isn't backing down on the trail like they did so many other times with the last staff. It's a message that the Gators want a kid and went out and got him from other powerhouse programs. Uh, This isn't like Jim McElwain's first class where he fell into five stars that wanted to be Gators like Martez Ivey and CeCe Jefferson. Uh, Yes, McElwain had to recruit those guys, but they wanted to be Gators. Uh, Much of Petit Friere's recruitment has been pretty quiet, so no one really knows where he's leaning, if anywhere right now. But with a week before signing day, Florida is right in the mix for the five-star bill. Yeah, they are. And this is um, one of two guys, and we'll talk about the other one here in a little bit, which is Nessa Silvera, that to me, these are the the Richter scale recruits in the class for Florida. Uh, When you talk about a potential NFL left tackle, 
and, and no disrespect to Richard Garage, who also might be an NFL left tackle, but this is a guy that is number one in his position, the top offensive lineman in America, a five-star. Uh, he's a guy that has looked good at all-star games. He's got the frame to just be a monster in the SEC. Uh, you, you see the same kind of potential on the other side of the ball in Solvera, but you know either one of these guys or both are uh, are recruits that if Mullen can land them, we use this as a cliche, but it, it kind of puts the nation on notice that hey, guess what? Florida's recruiting back like they should be again, uh, and you, you just gotta like the um, the feel of things that they can land. Uh, Petit Frere though is is the five stars the the top at his position nationally in Florida, just a guy that Florida needs to land. It should be landing kids like this. Not maybe you don't land him every year, but you should land them at some position just about every year. And this is one that could really generate a lot of momentum for the program going into the spring. Yeah. But you know, at the, at the end of the day, I mean, he's, he's a five-star talent. Silvera, obviously very highly, highly ranked four-star, um, I still think that the underpinning here is that there's so much blue chip talent beneath those guys that these guys are sort of topping off the class. Whereas if you look at McIlwain's 2015 class, those two five stars, and again, I mean, McIlwain brought those in. You have to give him credit for that. But those two five stars are the only reason the class was even remotely acceptable. I mean, I think it was 21st ranked overall, and it was underpinned by a bunch of three-star guys to sort of build depth and build the point system, as you will. But it was not blue chip guys. So there were five total blue chip guys in that class. So, um, you you know, Mullen already has his base, but now the question is where can he expand from there? And and Petit Friere and Silvera and some of these other guys are really sort of a way of pushing this over the top from just being a, a good transition class to being a good class. Well, and it's a key position too. I mean, you're, you're talking about picking up – if you were to land Garage and, and Petit Friere, kind of like you mentioned on a previous show, you've got your bookend tackles to go along with your quarterback and your gobs of wide receiver talent. I mean, for all the talk we've done about uh, on the shows about how – the passing game has been anemic. The offense needs to change. They need more quarterbacks. They need to fix the offense. Well, what a better what better way is there to do it than that? You know, and if he caps off this offensive class with Petit Frere, he's done every single thing you could ask him to do with the offensive class and fixing the number one problem on the team. And so it's an exclamation point to that side of the ball in recruiting fourth year. Yeah, especially in the offensive line, you talk about that. They already have three offensive linemen uh, or Three three star offensive linemen, uh, you know. Com- now the latest one being Griffin McDowell committed, along with the two early uh, signees for uh, early signing day. But I mean, the list of names: Justin Watkins, Richard Garage, Griffin McDowell, Andrew Chatfield, Caleb Johnson, Noah Boykin. We'll see what happens with Dorian Gerald. Some whispers of Texas A and M now, but Jacob Copeland, Nicholas Petit Friere, Malcolm Lamar, Nessa Silvera. Look, those names right there are pretty much going to be the makeup of Florida's class moving forward. Will they they get these guys? Will they not get these guys? Those are the names right there that uh, are, you know, mostly blue chip guys. They're they're, they're five-star, four-star guys and can make up the rest and the bulk of the rest of this class heading for this 2018 class. Uh, I think those names, you know, Watkins is already in, hopefully in the fall. He like, his commit should should hold garage we'll see where his commit holds uh from everything we've heard a really good visit this past weekend florida looks to keep his commitment there just as i recently said got uh mcdowell uh, offensive lineman but you know chatfield they're in the running for noah boykin they're in the running for they feel good about him jacob copeland who knows with him but you know so florida as i mentioned with with uh, nicholas petit for you with the the 
the elites of, of talking about him. It's a Florida, Alabama, Tennessee, probably on the outside looking in uh, uh, there. So uh, Malcolm Lamar, Florida FSU battle, one of the few Florida, Florida State battles there. But, you know, we were wondering if Florida could even get him on campus uh, from this past weekend. And Florida made such an impression to where, you know, he has said Florida is near the top of his recruitment right now up there with FSU. And that's a Severa. You know, we'll see what happens with between Florida and Miami there. Uh, could this be another, uh, uh, you know, Henderson situation from last year where a lot of people thought he was going to Miami and, and he signs with Florida uh, on signing day. So, guys, I mean, th that list of names there, Florida's in a good situation for a lot of these guys. They really are. And the thing that kind of strikes me, especially with Chatfield and Lamar, is that there's, those are two guys that maybe are not the perfect size and, and body build for a traditional 4-3 defense. Uh, but when you approach them and say, hey, Lamar, maybe you're a little bit of a tweener in a 4-3, but you're the perfect defensive end for my 3-4 defense with Grantham, I think it's given them a pitch. And I think the same thing with Chatfield. Maybe he's not feeling as comfortable about developing into that prototypical 4-3 defensive end, but as a hybridized 3-4 outside linebacker defensive end, maybe they've got an angle there. Maybe that's what is, is getting some traction. And, and I really like both of those guys for Grantham's defense. I think they're prototypical for what they want to do there. Yeah, I'm also sure that they've showed them the depth chart. <laughs> and, that they, and that they've indicated that there's there's some spots for them to fill there and really some some areas where they could have helped last year having those guys on the field and and so it's pretty apparent that that they're necessary on the defensive side of the ball for for next year as well so I think they can sell playing time I think they can sell defense and and again I, I think it's it's interesting that last year um, I don't know if everybody remembers but last year it was sort of a race for Florida to get up to the 11th spot. And, you know, it really took a strong close for McIlwain to get up to that point. And really, we're sort of almost in the exact same spot this year, but it's a transition year. So it's, it's just really odd to see that. But to your point, Dave, the fact that they've got all these guys considering Florida um, is a big deal. And then if they can close three or four of them, you've got probably the best transition class since Steve Spurrier left. Yeah, and Will, you uh, kind of segue into where I was going next with what you put out on readingreaction.com. Uh, earlier on Wednesday, you know, like you said, it has the makings of an outstanding transition class, but the potential to be an elite class in, in general. And you really hit that home in your article. Yeah, well, you know, if you look at the SEC, I mean, which is, I mean, ten of the top ten of the top fourteen teams in the SEC are top twenty five programs nationally from a recruiting perspective from two thousand fifteen to two thousand eighteen, and and if you break that down into blue chips, so how many blue chips are they signing? Alabama signs almost twenty a year. Georgia has averaged sixteen and a half. Auburn at fifteen. LSU at fourteen and a half. Tennessee at nine and a half. Texas A and M at eight point eight, and then Florida is at eight point three. So it really shouldn't be a surprise to us that Florida feels like a middle-of-the-pack team in the SEC. They are a middle-of-the-pack team in the SEC based on the signing. And if you look at Mullen this year, he's already got nine blue-chip guys coming in, but he's got the potential, like we've talked about, to bring in two, three, four more. And if you're bringing in 13 blue-chip guys, usually you end up with about half of those guys making a contribution to your team over the four years that you're there. So if you can bring in 14 blue-chip guys, that's seven guys who are going to make an impact on your team. You do that for four years, and you've got 28 guys who are making a contribution. You can even afford to have a couple of injuries, and you still have blue-chip talent come in. And we saw that with Alabama in the national championship game, bringing in two at a play quarterback quarterback bringing in uh, the five-star running back when they when Damian Harris wasn't doing what Saban wanted him to do and all of a sudden you've got these young guys all over the field who are just as talented and you saw it on the other side of the field with Georgia where they had Fromm in there after their five-star quarterback um, 
Eason had gone down earlier in the year. And you see that over and over and over again with these elite teams where, you know, if you look historically, elite recruiting leads to national championships, but more than anything, just it's, it's a depth issue. It's being able to handle the injuries. And, you know, if you think about Alabama a couple of years ago, they just got decimated on defense and still were able to make it to the national championship game. And this and year it, too, Will. This year too, going in late in the season. Yeah, but it was a little bit worse last year. And then they had to come up against Deshaun Watson. <laughs> and, that, and that was really the, the the determining factor there. But uh, but yeah, so you look at it. If, I mean, if he can bring in 12, 13 blue chips this year, all of a sudden he's starting to get close to what schools like Georgia and Florida State have averaged over the last four years. Now, he, it's not going to fix the problem because they had five in 2015 and then I think eight in 2016 and maybe 10 last year, something like that. Um, and so 13 this year isn't going to fix the problem. But the good news is, is that in year two, everyone else other than McIlwain has had a top three class. They've averaged 16 blue chip players. So again, now you've got 15 to 16 guys who are going to be contributors onto your team from those two classes. And that's when you're going to see the jump forward, I would imagine. I think there's going to be a little bit of plugging of holes and things like that this year. Um, that maybe, uh, you know, there might be some games that Florida loses that are close um, just because they're they're equal in talent. I think next year they'll be able to exceed that. And then the other thing is, is that you've got Grimes and Van Jefferson coming in as transfers, and they're not necessarily counted in these numbers, but they're certainly a blue chip guys that Mullen is bringing in and has essentially recruited. Yeah, a couple of things here. <clears throat> First of all, to clarify, because somebody asked us this on Twitter, what, what do we mean by blue chip recruits? What we're talking about when we say blue chip are, are generally that means a recruit that is either a four star or a five star recruit. They're guys that are the cream of the crop nationally, a very small percentage of your recruits that are generally looked upon as the best of the best in the country at their respective positions. And so basically what we'll say in here is that uh, it's all about getting these these top rated guys. We've we've shown through uh, some of the things we've written and dialogue about on the show and, and different things that there is a correlation uh, between these higher ratings and success. And all of our regular listeners have kind of followed along with that and know what we're talking about there. Um, but I, I do want to emphasize one thing here, and that's that you say it would be would be really great if uh, Mullen were to land 12, 13, 14 blue chips in his class this year. And I want to take a step back there and, and remind uh, our listeners that that has not been done uh, beyond the number of 12 at Florida in the transition class. That is the record. 12 blue chips is the most in recent history since the advent of star ratings and in the post Spurrier era. Uh, Will Muschamp had 12 blue chips in his transition first year class in 2011. Nobody's matched that, that number. Um, you know, and it got so bad that in, in, 2015, uh, there were only five in, in McElwain's first class, but one of those was destined for a JUCO. He was never really a threat to even qualify. And DeAnthony McGriffs, he really just had four. Um, and, you know, one of the things that I'm looking for out of Dan Mullen, on the field, off the field, and recruiting and everything else, is process and progress. And, you know, you've really convinced me, Will, to, to look at the process and we are seeing these things rather than peanut butter sandwiches. We're seeing helicopters out of Dan Mullen and we're seeing them in the recruiting. Okay. There's but, the difference. Not peanut right. butter and jelly. We got freaking helicopters now. Right. <laughs> but look, the fact that you're even talking about, Oh, well, Hey, if you can bring in 12 or 13 blue chip recruits, <laughs> we're not at this point saying, having to make excuses for Dan Mullen's first class here, at least not yet. We're saying, wow, he has a chance to be at the, the optimal level and the highest levels of what other coaches have accomplished at UF in their first year. And that is tremendous. 
that is tremendous. Whether he ends up with 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14 of these blue chips, the fact that he's got so many already and he's got that base that you're talking about says that we don't even have to talk about how long it takes him to get out of the McIlwain funk in recruiting. He is operating at a UF level in recruiting in, in his first year. Long way to go here. But as of now, the early returns say we see confidence, we see process, we see progress. And the, Bill, I'm glad you said at a UF level because that's kind of where I was going with earlier. And, you know, we fell off of that under McIlwain so much. It's because there were times where it looked like he didn't want to get into the battles with Alabama and the big time programs in Ohio State when Ohio State could come down to Jacksonville and, and, and pull a kid and you know, you're an hour and a, an hour and a half away from, from Gainesville and Jacksonville and Ohio State and Northern schools are coming down here and, and taking kids. Miami's recruited Jacksonville well uh, lately. There was a lot, you know, there's a lot of things that we could go back and look at that that's not happening right now. We are Florida is in the mix with the Ohio States, the Alabamas, the Georgias, uh, uh, for you know Auburn's right now. They're recruiting well. Florida's in the mix with these big-time programs that we expect them to be. We, look, it, it's actually a badge of honor. And when you're looking at and you're looking at a commit, and he's got Florida on his list, but he's got also got Alabama. He's also got Auburn. He's also got Florida State. He's also got Miami. That's what it's supposed to be like. You want tough recruiting battles because that means you're going out there and recruiting the best of the best. It does, man. And, and when you saw some of the kids that were decommitting earlier on and where they were going and some of them flipped to Nebraska or wherever else and, you know, and they, it looked like you were losing kids out of the class at first, but it's because some of the kids have been taken in there, you know, from schools that they shouldn't have been competing with and because they probably shouldn't have been Florida commitments. That's just the way it is, you know, but I'm looking down the list at the, the little final list we've got of guys are competing with. I do see, I see Alabama, I see Notre Dame and Ohio State. And Miami, Florida State. Um, I mean, Noah Boykin, I think. But I think Ohio State might even be involved with Noah Boykin. You know, and then you yeah. got Auburn. Uh, and you're not going to win all those battles. But like you said, they're mixing it up with the respectable opponents now. And that's what you want. If, if your opponents don't want your talent, you've got a problem. Uh, the other thing is, is it's, it's nine weeks. Right by next week, it will have been nine weeks, and I think it's telling that they're not in a ton of recruiting battles with Florida State. That they are in recruiting battles with Auburn and Alabama and Ohio State and Miami schools that have established programs, established coaches at those programs. And Mullen's been able to sneak his way in and start to build relationships with these guys in the matter of eight or nine weeks. I think that really bodes well for next year, and I think that's what some of the some of the past trends for the Florida head coaches shows. And to your point, Bill, he's already. Mullen is already essentially at where most of the coaches have been in their transition classes. Anything he puts on top of that, you know, I feel a little bit greedy, but I want to be greedy. <laughs> <Yes. laughs> but at the same time, the fact that he's competing with these coaches that already have established programs, that he's not competing with people in transition classes necessarily. Um, you know, he's been able to, and, and I, I think based on his track record, being able to turn Emory Jones, um, Trey Dean, those sorts of guys, you can be pretty confident he's going to get a couple of these guys. And at that point, you really are talking about an elite class, not just an elite transition class. You know, and, and we were also talking about where things were and how bad they were. Let me just say this. Let me, let me give you, you guys some numbers at home about where the progress is, is tangible, where we can see it. Like, and it's not just some nebulous thing here. We've already talked about how, there were only five blue chips signed, really just four in McElwain's class because the one was just window dressing. He wasn't going to qualify. Well, they've already signed seven. You know, they've got two more committed in Justin Watkins and Richard Ross for total nine. So they've almost doubled up 
the, the talent, the blue chip talent already. The blue chip percentage of the class, so the, the percentage of the class in 2015 that was comprised of those elite players was only 24%. Right now, as it sits with their commitments, it's at 56%. So they've doubled the ratio uh, of that talent, the proportion of the talent. The average recruit rating, according to the composite rating in 2015, was an, uh, 0.8721. 2018, it's a 0.9031. That is a significant, significant upgrade. The number of top 250 national recruits in 2015, they only had three. They've already got seven so far in this class. The percentage of the, the national top 250 that made up the 2015 class was only 14%. Right now, it's 44%, tripled. So I'm comparing that 2015 class. That was Jim McElwain's first class. Fast forward to 2018. So how is Mullen doing compared to the last guy? And the reason that I think that's so important is because we can't really compare the situation that Urban Meyer inherited to the one that Dan Mullen inherits. And so you look and to be approaching those Urban Meyer levels already and to be doing this much better than his predecessor, sure, maybe there's a lot more work to do, but it shows that he's doing a hell of a lot more than we saw the last guy do. And that's huge. Yeah, and then Bill talking about doing more. You said you go, oh, we're gonna probably you know crunch some numbers right quick and see who uh, who we think you know Florida can get in this class and probably who they're trending for. But as I mentioned, I'll mention the names again: Justin Watkins, Richard Garage, Griffin McDowell, Andrew Chatfield, Caleb Johnson, Noah Boykin, Jacob Copeland, Nicholas Petit Friere, Malcolm Lamar, Nessa Silvera, and Dorian Gerald. You know he's the, the big question mark uh, uh, right now with the recent news of the Texas A&M, as I mentioned. Yeah, that's, that's uh, I think, 11 or 12 names there. Florida doesn't have room for all these guys. You know, of course, we'd love to see every one of these guys uh, uh, be able to come in. But uh, you know, there's some numbers crunching to do uh, uh, here uh, with Florida uh, and, and who they're looking at bringing in. Yeah, there is. And remember, they started out with 24 initial counters that they could sign. So they could have 24 guys this year. They've got 13 locked up uh, from the early national signing day. However, one of those was Randy Russell that had a medical issue. He's not going to be able to play. And so there's some debate over whether or not the NCAA will hand them that initial counter back. Even though he signed, they may say, well, you can have his spot back. They may not. And here's the uh, thing about that. When did, they, when did they let Florida know that? Because you now, have, you now have a week. And if you don't let Florida know within the next few days, then you're, you can only really plan on nine. Yeah, and they certainly – I mean, they can't just take the chance and sign somebody yeah. they can't bring in I mean, because you've got all kinds of trouble at that point. But um, So that's a good point. Yeah, but they, they signed 13. Then they took the two transfer wide receivers that we'll talk about a little more about. So that took them to 15. And so if they're going to go to 24, though they've got three commitments in Justin Watkins, Richard Garage, Griffin McDowell. Those are people who've given their handshake agreement, say, I'm coming to Florida, but they haven't signed, so it's not binding. Um, but provided they hold on to those three – uh, that would give them between six and seven more they could add to the class. So when you look at only six to seven more, well, the top of your board, this is where it gets down to these wild card guys that, that differentiate the class between being good or great. You got wide receiver Jacob Copeland. You got offensive lineman Nicholas Petit-Frere. Defensive tackle probably Nessa Silvera. He's got to be at the top of their board there. Defensive end Malcolm Lamar. Uh, Linebacker, outside linebacker, defensive end, Andrew Chatfield, and cornerback Noah Boykin. Now, I know Dorian Gerald's in the mix. I know William Barnes, uh, who I don't think is coming. Uh, you got Ed Montalas, same deal. Caleb Johnson's defensive end. 
uh, that sounds like he might end up in the class because, again, those first six, that's your top of your board, the wild cards, and you're probably not going to get all of them. Right. Uh, but but they're the, the group uh, that are going to determine where this thing sits. And one thing I will tell our listeners, and I've been following recruiting since, gosh, I started off reading the commit list in the Florida Times Union back in the early 90s uh, before there you know, was a recruiting website. and Every year, every single year, the news explodes in this week and every team thinks they're getting everybody this week because they start pressing those guys for commits and they look them in the eye and say, I'm coming, coach. And then they go tell the next coach the same thing, you know, or sometimes you've got predatory websites. And I, I we love Gator Bait. I, I've got some friends on other boards that are, that are great. Uh, but over the years, there's been some bad websites that, they want the dollars, and so they put out the rumors that you're getting everybody. You know, it, there's just any number of reasons why you're going to hear a lot of good news this week. Um, so just word of the wise, temper your enthusiasm a little bit because they're not going to get everybody. And if they do, I will happily eat my words because it would be a first. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but, yeah, so it's going to be a race to the finish. It's going to be filled with ups and downs. and But the, that's the group. We're looking at six to seven more. and. We'll see how many they can get. I think the other thing to consider is if you look back at historically, so Zook signed 22 in his first class, Meyer signed 17, Muschamp signed 19, and McIlwain signed 21. So you can leave those spots open, if I'm not mistaken, and then back count guys from the 2019 class who are early enrollees. So there's also not really an incentive for Mullen to fill those spots just to fill them. He wants to fill them with guys who make sense for his program, who make sense in terms of building talent, that sort of stuff. And that's one of the reasons why I don't think that you'll see, um, you know, that you'll necessarily see Mullen reach for people. He's going to he's going to focus on the guys he wants, and if the guys he wants don't come, he can leave that spot open for somebody next year who's an early enrollee. So, you know, I wouldn't be disappointed if he only ends up with 21, 21 players coming in because that probably leaves you some extra slots for next year. Yeah, if it's something like 21, 22, what I'm looking at at that point is basically like average star rating, average star ranking, blue chip percentage. That's what we're looking for there. Uh, as we mentioned, you know, in, in this uh, first few minutes of the podcast, you know, if you, you're, I don't look at, I'm not going to look at total numbers uh, per se as I'm looking at percentage and average star rating. Guys, yeah, that, that's a great point. I've got like 30 different metrics uh, that I'm going to be tracking on this class. And, and, Guys, if you're listening out there, don't worry. We're going to be honest with you. You guys know us. Uh, we're going to tell you the truth on what we really think about the class. But the one thing I would not get too hung up on is national ranking. This is not the year to be worried about a top 10 class, top five class. Again, process progress. We want to look beyond those basic numbers to see how things are really going. Um, and so far, the returns are good. They really are. And, and there's some encouraging signs there. But it's going to be a fun week for sure. Absolutely. So, guys, I guess we're looking at about, you know, we said maybe eight, nine more guys are bringing in. So, you know, if you run some calculator stuff, Bill, and I know you've been doing that. Uh, you've, and you, you mentioned Florida, you know, this is not really the year. And you know, look, we, we, we said it before. We said it. We're, we're, we're star truthers. We're a star matter of guy. But this, you know, this first transition class isn't the really time to harp on that too much. As I said, I'm going to be looking more at the percentage and, and seeing uh, what they can bring in as far as that goes. 
But you know, Florida, there there is a path to the top ten with these top names we've we've listed. But you know, realistically, I think you're probably looking at a class. If we're losing twenty four seven sports calculator uh, in their kind of composite rankings, we go. I think you're looking at tops. You're probably looking at about a top eight class, top nine class, and anywhere from about eight or nine to probably around twelve. Yeah, I'm going to say ten to fifteen. No, I, I, would say eight, I would say eight or nine being the. It could be eight or nine. Yeah. I, I don't see it. Yeah. I, I yeah. say when all said and done, I'll throw out a random number of 12. Yeah. I, I'm thinking that was kind of referred to the likelihood because there is a, a scenario, and, and we were discussing this before we went on air, that they could sneak up into that solidly into that top 10. Uh, first, let me give you the, the worst case scenario. The, here's what we're I think we're looking at. Let's say. Of the current commits, they get they lose Richard Garage. He goes to Clemson, and they add only Caleb Johnson, defensive end, who's a three star, and Noah Boykin, who is a low rated four star. He's a cornerback, still solid players. Um, that would give them a class score on, of a composite on two thirty three point zero. Over the last five years, that class has ranked eighteen to twenty two in the nation. Now, I'll be honest with you: if that happens, I will be a little disappointed, and I mean more than just as a fan. That would be a little. I don't know that I, I wouldn't like what that would tell me a little bit about the finish. Uh, that would be right down national ranking in, into what 2015 was still better in many metrics, but it just wasn't, wouldn't feel real good. It wouldn't generate the kind of momentum and excitement that, on the recruiting trail that can carry over to recruits and not just fans. Now, on the other hand, the best case scenario, the, the landslide edition of this class, if you keep everybody you got and you add Nicholas, but fair, Nesta Silvera, Jacob Copeland, Malcolm Lamar, Andrew Chatfield, and Noah Boykin. You just go straight blue chips for the rest of your guys. That is a snowball effect of recruiting. That would give you 277.33 score. That has ranged between sixth in the country and ninth in the country over the last five years. And if that happens, again, the, the rest of the country's on notice, and that will be a national story about how Dan Mullen cleaned house and carried that into the spring, and they'll be cooking with gas. Now, the truth is probably somewhere in the middle. The best guess that I've got, you can call this my mock class, just based on what we've been reading, is let's say they add, or they keep their guys now. Let's say they hang on to Richard Garage, and they add Jacob Copeland, Andrew Chatfield, the three-star defensive end, Caleb Johnson, who's supposed to be a good prospect. It might be one of those three stars. And uh, Andrew, I had Andrew Chatfield on it twice, sorry, and Noah Boykin. And then let's say they have one sleeper guy, some guy they've kept warm, it's low rated, and they just like his potential, uh, add him on signing day. That would give them a score of 257.3. That's 257.13. And that's averaged nine to 14 over the past five years. And I think that's about where they're going to be. Yeah, I, I think it's interesting when you start talking about those point totals. So right now, Florida's class on 24 7 is 235. And if you look at it, McIlwain's transition class was 227. So the class <laughs> as it stands is already ranked better um, just from an overall talent standpoint than McIlwain's first one. But the but where you were, you had him, I think, about 257 points. McIlwain's year two total was 261. His year three total was 251. So basically you're talking about a transition class that is as good from a talent perspective as the previous two classes were at Florida. So, um, you know, just – a generally realistic scenario is 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 really really good, obviously. And then if you bring in everybody, like you said, then you're sitting there talking about you know somewhere in that six to nine range. 
I think that's unlikely just because I'm there's some there's some doubling up there, right? There are multiple offensive linemen they're going after, multiple linebackers, multiple multiple defensive linemen. And, you know, chances are they're gonna there's gonna be a decision one guy or the other and for both the player and the program. And so uh but hey, it'll be it'll be <laughs> I'm it's not out of the realm of possibility. And that's what makes it exciting, right? Is all these guys have some genuine interest in Florida and and so it's conceivable that the home run could happen. Yeah. Yeah. I'll oh, go, go ahead, Dave. Sorry. No, go ahead, go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. Well, you know, one of our uh followers today, Jen at Gator DMD, uh, you see it was talking about this as our first year following recruiting, how exciting it was. It was this is the zenith, you know, <laughs> this, this is the week. Like I said, it feels like you're getting everybody. But just again, saying it again, you heard it here second. Um Temper your expectations. They're going to lose some battles, but they're going to win some. And if they pick up a couple of these guys, man, and just to add a couple of more of these blue chips, this is getting back to what Gator football is supposed to be and what we're supposed to see out there. And these are quality recruits. It goes beyond the numbers. Just to have these guys in the trenches and big-time playmakers like Jacob Copeland, these are the guys you're going to want to watch on Saturdays. I mean, they really good-looking football players. Absolutely. Bill, you ready to move on to uh... – Research we've been teasing for the last couple of weeks. Oh yeah, yeah, and it, and, it, and it really ties into the stars. Really ties into the stars matter argument. So. Yeah. Well, and this one was by request. Now I just want to throw that out there, but it's been a bur- burning question from a lot of people that are, this has been one of those points of disagreement that we're about to get into. Yeah, but we got a couple of questions too that uh, you know we asked for questions a couple of weeks ago, and I saved the. I saved the quarterback ones for uh, for, for this one. Uh, we know the quarterback position plays uh, into the stars ranking uh, in more ways than one. We've seen recent champions be able to win with a three-star quarterback. And, of course, we've seen recent teams win with the most important position on the field being a blue-chip recruit. Bill, how much do stars matter at the quarterback position? A lot. Good night, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for listening to Gators. Right. <laughs> No. um, Okay. Listen, it's not just the stars. People always ask me, you know, what about quarterbacks under six feet tall? What about elite 11? Is that where championship quarterbacks are born? What about the armor all American game, army all American game? Uh, What about three-star quarterbacks? What about, you know, guys that are whatever. What about Baker Mayfield? So I sat down and I did the research and will push me farther than I wanted to go. Cause I, I read all <laughs> the national championship quarterbacks back to 2004. And the reason I did that is, um, you know, the, the unified rankings, the national ranking system really kind of started to, to solidify in 2002. And, and I just couldn't find any be behind 2004 that I could find solid rankings on because Matt Leinert in 2004 found good stuff on him, but beyond him was Matt Mock from LSU 2003, who actually was a baseball player out of high school. And then beyond, beyond it was Craig Krenzel, couldn't find ratings on him. So every national championship, as far back as I could, of guys that had had star ratings, and I could find back to the very beginning of the Elite 11 and the All-Star Games and ran their data. I got all their stats and everything. And I was like, I'm feeling good about myself. We're going to get some good data. And then Will was like, well, you really ought to get playoff quarterbacks. You know, <laughs> and so I ran the playoff quarterbacks and then I went and got everybody that's won an SEC. So I wanted to find out we did it right. Let's compare the numbers on everybody who's won a national championship that we can find as a, as a quarterback, everybody that's made the playoffs and everybody that's won the SEC. And tonight, if you're wondering 
about six foot quarterbacks that played in the Under Armour All American game that were mid level four star. I can tell you exactly what you want to know. And um, this is where I need one of those uh, <laughs> one of those voiceovers that go Gators breakdown. <laughs> 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 yeah, man. So here, here's where it is. Let's start with the national championship quarterbacks, if you don't mind. All right. So when we compare these guys, the first thing I want to tell you is that they're not short. <laughs> you know, the, the average high. And, you know, this was a debate when Chris Lee came in because, and ironically, he was the shortest one on the list. Uh, but they average six foot, 3.2 inches tall for national championship quarterbacks. And he was the only one under six foot, and he was actually 71, 71.88 inches at the combine, and they rounded him up to six feet tall. Uh, so that is the reason I think you, coaches don't feel comfortable and haven't had national championship level success with these smaller Doug Flutie type quarterbacks. So, so that is a factor in recruiting. Uh, year in school, they typically were almost a, on average a junior, 2.9 years, and I didn't account for red shirts. So, yeah, bad data, whatever. But um, typically, they're in the third year, unless they're a red shirt. The average star ratings of national championship quarterbacks, here's the moment of truth, 4.2. The average num numerical rating on the composite score in 24-7 sports, 0.9526. And they averaged being the 116th rated recruit or ranked recruit nationally. So out of everybody in the country, average 116th. They were, on average, ranked 5.2 at quarterback, so the fifth-best quarterback on average nationally. Now, the star band breakdown of the national champions, of those 14 national champions, five of them were five stars, seven were four stars, and only two were three stars. And before I give the kicker, any comments or questions, Will? <laughs> 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 now keep going man I, I i'll save my i'll save my criticisms for the end okay now let me just remind you guys that every year we have a couple of five-star quarterbacks and these guys are winning like the half the national champions and then almost all the rest are four stars but if you're saying right now well yeah but look there is a path for three stars to win them yes you're right however both of those three-star quarterbacks that have won a national championship since the advent of star rankings played for Alabama. In 2009, you had Greg McElroy on one of the lowest star-rated championship teams in recent history. Um, I think they only had like a 38% blue chip percentage. They also had were because they were very young, but they had signed. Uh, they had eight five-stars on the roster and had signed 35 blue chips in the previous two classes. So the floodgates had opened and the talent was pouring in. It was just young. Now, uh, in 2015, Jake Coker was a three-star, and he was the lowest-rated quarterback on the list. Um, and I don't have his rating pulled up. Trust me, he was low. Um, that team had a whopping 75% blue-chip percentage on the roster and 21 five-stars that he was playing with. So can a three-star quarterback get you a national championship? Yes. If Nick Saban is your coach, <laughs> and if you got the kind of talent, and again, right, and again, stars matter because you're surrounded by the other ones, right? And and I think all of us assume that yeah, if you've got a better quarterback, you could need, need a little less on the roster, like we saw with Clemson. And if you have a little less on a quarterback, you're going to need more on the roster around him. It's kind of common sense, that, or at least what we would assume. The numbers tend to back that up. But if we take those two guys out, 
and we look at the national championship quarterbacks that are in there, the average star rating of the national championship quarterbacks rises to a 4.5. And the average rating rises to a 0.9707. The national recruiting rank rises all the way to 58.6. And the quarterback position average rank is 3.6. So then the average ranking is the third or fourth best quarterback in the country and a top 60 player nationally. These are the guys winning national championship when you take those two out. Um, so the data is pretty clear when it comes to national championship quarterbacks that elite quarterback recruits eventually lead their team to national championships. Uh, nine of the 14 uh, championship quarterbacks studied were once rated as uh, top five at their position. Half of them will get this stat. Half of the national championship quarterbacks I considered and studied there were either as the, ranked as the number one or number two quarterback in the nation as a high school recruit. Half of them were the number one or number two guy, the Tua Tagalo, whatever his name is. And, <laughs> Tagalo. <laughs> yeah. Tagalo. Those guys are the ones winning national championships most of the time. Um, and I didn't even count. Uh, it's Tua Tagovailoa. I didn't even count him. Uh, I went with Jalen Hurts because Jalen Hurts took him throughout the whole season. And if I put like, uh, Tua in there, the numbers would have gone even higher. Um, and also the Baker Mayfield question, I tweeted it before he played Georgia. Nobody rated that low had ever uh, led their team to a national championship. And sure enough, there it is. Um, he was Ooh, a three-star. So close. Yeah. <laughs> he was the number 42 quarterback in the country. And the lowest-ranked quarterback um, – as far as amongst other quarterbacks to ever win the uh, national championship was Jake Coker. And even though he was a three-star, he was still the 15th best pro style quarterback prospect in the country. Nobody ranked lower has ever won one. So to answer the question as far as from a national championship perspective, yeah, stars matter. And not, you don't even need just a blue chip guy. You need an elite level guy typically to win the title. Yeah, so I do have a criticism here, and 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 I agree with you that that you need elite quarterback play to win a national championship. That's not really what's in dispute. What I would say though is, if you look back at the teams that have won national championships, and these are rivals rankings because I did this a while back when I was still using rivals uh, rivals rankings. But in 2016, Clemson won the national championship. They averaged 9.3 is uh, for the four years prior to the national championship. Then Alabama in 2015 averaged a 1.3 as their recruiting ranking. Ohio State was at five. Florida State was at seven, Alabama's at two, Alabama's at two, Auburn at 12 and a half, Alabama at 6.5, Florida 5.3, LSU at nine, and Florida at six and a half. So you're self-selecting here because Florida had those high-ranking classes and brought in all those five stars, and one of them was Tim Tebow. And so sure. he win, he wins those, he helps win those national championships, but the guys around him are also helping win those national championships. So you go and look at something like McKenzie Milton for UCF this past year. He's five foot 11, 177 pounds. UCF put up all sorts of points. Didn't lose to anybody. They and won, won the, the national championship. championship. <laughs> the national championship. <laughs> I, I have found the outlier. <laughs> oh, the outlier. But, uh, <laughs> well, Georgia didn't win. So UCF didn't win the national championship, but, uh, right. <laughs> But I mean, yeah. So Georgia would have won, yes. So, yeah. So, so, so two things. One is that that five eleven guy doesn't get recruited to an elite program like Florida or Georgia or Alabama because they have their pick of these guys who are six two six three. And then the other thing is is that um, 
you know, in situations like, let's say, Lamar Jackson at Louisville, I mean, he's lighting it up and putting up 49 points a game, but the defense has given up 50. And so they go, you know, nine and three, and they don't get a chance to win the championship. That doesn't have anything to do with the quarterback. It has to do with the program. And so I, I think, I, I think both things can be true, right? It can be true that you need an elite quarterback to win the national championship. But the other thing that's true is you need a bunch of elite players with him to take it, to take it forward. I think what it does say is that Baker Mayfield was an outlier this year, that him taking a team that really didn't have, I mean, they had top 15 talent from a recruiting class standpoint. They didn't have top five and his ability to take them to the playoffs really, I think is something we need to give him credit for. And, and we'll see when he goes to the NFL, cause he's somebody I would bet on based on what I've seen in college. Yeah. It's, you know, and listen, here's the tough part. Um, I think that we have enough, a convincing case from all the data we've broken down to say that stars definitely matter in the big picture. They really, really do. But it becomes tough when you have overlapping factors like this to separate correlation from causation. You know, and, and I think that's where it gets tough. I think you make an excellent point. I think that there is some coincidental, you know, overlap here between where these guys are going. But then again, I mean, I know you mentioned uh, Wisconsin. Like what, what you mentioned to me, they said, well, Wisconsin might be the better example if they ever got a hold of a five-star quarterback. Um, and it's kind of crazy. They had Russell Wilson, who wasn't a five-star. Um, they still didn't get it. And so, yeah, it is tough. It really is. And so I would think of this more. <laughs> Will Miles is holding up the Kadarius Tony sign. Yeah, He's if, you're not, if you're not watching on YouTube, uh, if you're just listening to the podcast. Uh, I'm counting hey, with my Yoda hey, puppet. I think by the, uh, by the height metric Bill threw out there, Kadarius Tony would not get it done. <laughs> if it's up a season like Mackenzie Milton, no one's going to care. Hey, no. No, listen, man. I, all I'm trying to provide here is a roadmap of how it's been done. That's what our stats do. They say yep. this is about probability based on what's happened before. Is it possible that trends change? Absolutely. Things change. Football changes. Life changes. So, you know, it'd be great if, especially somebody like Kadarius Tony, who is short and a three-star, but has all the athletic ability in the world, comes in and Mullen turns him loose like a weapon of defensive destruction, you know? So I'm all for it. It just hasn't happened in the past. And, Bill, to, to your point about the, the higher-ranking uh, players that usually lead to national championships, Florida's got two on the roster at the quarterback position in Felipe Franks and Emory Jones. Uh, so, you know, we'll see how those guys fit in, but you know, there's not a lot of uh, Kadarius Tony's back up there again from Will. Uh, there's a lot of, <laughs> there's a, you know, there's not a lot of belief that Felipe Franks can be that guy after what we've seen from one year uh, under Jim McElwain and, and that offense uh, starting there. And Emory Jones is a true freshman who'd be coming in with, with a high ceiling and a, and a high ranking. So it would be interesting you know, if, if it's going to be done under Dan Mullen and be done early, Sans say it'd be one of those two guys. Yeah, they, they fit in the threshold. The guys that have won titles, have there are players that have uh, been ranked at or lower than where Emory Jones and Felipe Franks were that have won national titles. And so, I mean, is this a magic formula? Absolutely not. We know that. There's Jeff Driscoll's, there's Baker Mayfield's, you know, and then there's Jim McElwain's and there's Dan Mullet. So, you know, coaching matters, environment matters, the, the – the, the player matters, you know, but Felipe Franks was a four-star ranked number 54. 
five, uh, number five pro style in the country. Emory Jones uh, was the number 85 prospect in the country, uh, the fifth best pro style, or excuse me, dual threat uh, quarterback in the country. All I'm saying is that these guys fit the statistical mold of guys that have won titles. And yep, Franks has had a world of struggle. Uh, but I, for one, am waiting to see what Mullen can do with the guy. And so it wouldn't shock me if either one of them turned out to to be great for Florida and lead them to, to big success. Yeah, though I, I I do go back to again if we're talking about individual performance, and um, I don't have it I don't have it pulled apart for running backs and quarterbacks. But I I looked at the Heisman winners from 2004 to 2017, and there were five five stars, four four stars, and five three stars who won it, and there were 13 five stars, 15 four stars, and 12 three stars who were top three. And most of those guys are quarterbacks because for the most part, yeah. the Heisman Trophy is a quarterback award at this point. And so, um, again, I think you can get elite performance from a quarterback and you don't necessarily have elite performance from a defense, or at least not national championship, right? I mean, I think you got to be 11-1, and 10-2, and two, some, somewhere in that range to get into the Heisman conversation. Nobody's taking a four and seven quarterback who, who puts up elite numbers. So, um, again, I think there's nuance both ways. I think I think it's pretty clear that you need elite quarterback play to win a national championship. I just think it's probably also pretty clear that you need elite play everywhere else to win one as well. <laughs> Absolutely. They all go together. And, and you know, one thing though is that I thought was interesting is that when you look at the all-star games and some of these other factors in the elite 11, um, they were not quite as, important of factors as far as they didn't show that high statistical correlation uh, you saw about 71 uh, percent of the national championships on the elite 11 but only 57 percent for sec championship quarterbacks and 50 percent for for playoff teams it kind of was staggered um same thing for the all-star games they were only 50 percent uh, participants for the national championship games, only 29% of the SEC champion got were Under Armour, Army All-Americans, and only 25% of the playoff quarterbacks were. So you got some different things at play there, but it all kind of, come, for me, comes back to those ratings. I think they're mo the, the most accurate and telling sign. All right. Talking about quarterback, you guys want to answer a couple questions that were sent our way? Sure. Go for it. All right. Uh, from Gator for Life at B-O-L Gator on Twitter. I don't know how to really say that, but that's what his uh, name is. Assuming Emory Jones starts and seeing we are set at running back, do you see a run-heavy offense at least until Jones gets acclimated? Uh, guys, I, I looked at this. It's going to be run-heavy either way, uh, no matter the experience at quarterback. I went back and looked at the percentages of how much Dan Mullen ran the ball compared to pass the ball. There's only two seasons. 2015 and 2012, where they passed the ball at Mississippi State more than they actually ran the ball. Uh, 2015, they uh, run the ball only 43% of the time, went 9-4 and four that year, and they looked like they wanted to limit Dak Prescott's runs that year because he had 210 carries in 2014, only 160 in 2015. So they didn't run the ball as much because the quarterback didn't run the ball as much. Um, back in 2012, it was because they had Tyler Russell, who was not really known as a runner, only ran the ball 43 times that year. Um, so 48% in 2012, almost half and half. But and you know his first few years at Mississippi State, go back to 2009, ran the ball 66% of the time. 2010, ran the ball 67% of the time. Uh, in his third year, 2011, 
58%. So it started going down a little bit. So starting in 2011, you had it at 58%, 2012, 48% running the ball, 2013, 53%, 2014, the 10-3 year at Mississippi State. That Prescott's big, you know, high, almost Heisman-like year, they ran the ball 57% of the time. And as I mentioned, he had 210 carries that year. Uh, 55% or they 43%, as I mentioned, back in 2015, ran the ball 55% of the time in 2016. And this past year, they ran the ball 64% of the time. Uh, but if you go back to his time at Florida as offensive coordinator there, go back to 2006, of course, Chris Leak was not as much of a running quarterback, so only 53% running the ball there. 2007, Tim Tebow's first year, we all remember that, 57% they ran the ball. Uh, in 2008, year, ran the ball 61% of the time in 2008. So, as I mentioned, there's only two years that Dan Mullen's either been an offensive coordinator or – uh, a head coach in only two years have they passed the ball more than they run it. So it's going to be a run heavy offense, uh, no matter the quarterback. Yeah, I, I think that they're going to, I think they're going to pound the rock. I, I really do. I think that's what the talent is. I think that if anything, depending on who the quarterback is really, maybe not depending on the quarterback. I think that Frank's is uh, best untapped attribute is his legs. If he's the guy, I think if Emory Jones the guy, his athletic ability is going to be his best, uh, his best weapon as a freshman. So whoever they go with it, and of course, if Tony's in there, that'll be the case as well. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I, I think that this team is set up to run the ball pretty well. And and I think that's where he's going to focus early on. When, when you've got a guy that's un, unsure of himself in the passing game, like a freshman could be, and like Frank's is probably from his past, I think why not keep it in his hands and just try to make something happen on the ground? So yeah, I, that's what I expect to happen. Yeah. I, I it's an interesting question because if you're the defense, what are you trying to do? You're going to try to make that true freshman throw the ball if Emory Jones is the quarterback. Or if Kadarius Toney's the quarterback, you're going to try to make him throw the ball because he's essentially a true freshman considering he played receiver last year. So at quarterback, at least he'd be at that experience level. So um, if I'm a defensive coordinator, I'm daring the guy to throw the ball. I'm playing one-on-one. -on -one, and Mullen's offense is predicated on numbers. It's predicated on th when they load the box, you throw it. And when you've got an advantage in the box, you run it. And so I actually think, especially early on against some of these teams that maybe have talent deficits, they're going to have to they're going to have to decide how do you want how do I want to defend Florida? I think they're going to bring guys up into the box. And based on what Mullen does, you got to throw the ball at that point. And if you can't trust him to throw the ball, then he can't be in the game. And that's really sort of the the crux of what Mullen wants to do. So. Um, I, I think historically Mullen has run the ball, but I also think historically he's 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 always trusted his quarterbacks to throw it, and he's always had strength up front. And we saw last year when Florida tried to rely on their offensive line against Michigan, they just got decimated. Mm. Now, is that scheme? Is that strength and conditioning? Or is that talent? I think we'll find out pretty early. All but, of the above. Well, and, may, and maybe so, but that was that was a game where they, where McIlwain was going in saying this is the strength of our team, and they were running stretch plays and all sorts of stuff, and Michigan just absolutely destroyed them. And if they don't have if they can't win one on one battles up front, they're going to have to throw it. Yeah, the one thing I would add to that though, and, and I'm certainly not suggesting that they're not going to throw the ball when they need to with the looks there, because you're right. If Florida has been nine years of of just running into eight and nine man fronts, but. Um, the one interesting thing you mentioned is the numbers games. And yes, Mullen's offense is about winning the numbers game. And although those loaded boxes are a little tough to overcome, uh, the one thing his offense gives you with an athlete at the quarterback position is a way to 
neutralize those numbers with a running quarterback. And so that's why you might see them spread out a little bit and run with a quarterback or run a little option game. I, I, I think that, sure, I think they're going to have to throw the ball. I think play action needs to be a heavy part of what they do, and they need to be able to go vertical at times and stretch the defense. But I think if at all possible, if they can get it done, they're going to want the bread and butter early on in his regime to beat the running game. Yeah, he also dictates it with what he does formation-wise. Ollie Connolly for SEC Country wrote something that was really good in terms of him splitting out wide receivers wider mm-hmm. than, than teams normally do, mm-hmm. and it made them essentially declare their coverage. And by doing that, they immediately knew where the numbers advantage was. And so I think he's going to do the same thing, especially with a freshman quarterback where he makes the pre-snap read obvious, and it's just, you know, it's take, take a look at your first read, take a look at your second read. If neither one's open, you take off or it's a running play straight from the beginning, just by design. So uh, there's some design things he'll be able to do if he wants to run the ball. Yep. Uh, we'll ask this one quick so we can uh, wrap the show up a little bit, but Dylan Brooks uh, sent if Emory Jones wins the starting job and say Florida gets another dual threat quarterback in 2019, do you see all of the other quarterbacks transferring? Yeah. Uh, it's kind of, Interesting, you know, does it look like Jake Allen or Kyle Trask necessarily fit this system uh, uh, very well? So I think that was two guys you start with, uh, but we don't know. Uh, you know, we'll kind of see where, where the offense goes from here. And as we mentioned, uh, how much would Dan Mullen rely on uh, on the run game? How much would he rely on a quarterback that can throw the ball? Uh, but you would have to think, and if you looked at some offers that they've pushed out in the 2019 uh, class, they do seem more of the dual threat type of quarterbacks that Dan Mullen has won mostly with. So guys, it, it does look like, you know, there's a lot of numbers there anyway with quarterbacks just in general, uh, but you, you definitely can see some transfers probably coming uh, if uh, after maybe spring this year, if not definitely next year. Yeah. What do you think? Will you think they all leave if that happens? Oh, I mean, I, I, they're low, they're relatively low rated quarterbacks who are going to be behind people who were handpicked for the system. I I think it's, it, it would be, I mean, unless they want to be coaches, (laughs) it's, it's probably, it's probably not where they want to stay. And that'll be the question. I mean, if those guys really feel like they've got the ability to go play somewhere, I mean, sure. Why wouldn't you transfer to a school that, you know, either at the lower level or at FCS or maybe even just you know, transfer and play at Colorado state or something like that, where you get some playing time and, and, you know, chances are McElwain gets a job next year. And so it's really sort of a perfect opportunity then for those guys to maybe transfer there, um, you know, transfer with someone who recruited you at a, at a, I'm assuming not a power five school, but we'll see. So, um, and the same thing happened at Florida with Josh Portis. I mean, Josh Portis was the first recruit for urban Meyer and he didn't get to play and he eventually transferred out as well. Can you imagine that recruiting pitch? <laughs> hey, let me ruin you again. <laughs> Man, that's exactly what went through my head. Like, if, I, if I'm I, one of those guys, do I, do I want to follow him or not? <laughs> I got a peanut butter sandwich. <laughs> hey, Luke Del Rio followed him all over the place. So. Uh, good point. Uh, but if nothing else, he's loyal because I mean I would have gotten rid of Nussmeyer about two years earlier. So guys, quickly, I, uh, I threw up the poll last week with the staff complete after the hiring of Larry Scott. How would you grade the Florida coaching staff? Uh said we'd discuss some comments. Uh not many since we're kind of running short on time, but 57% out of 1,626 votes, 57% gave the grade of an A, 39% of a B. 3% C or D and 1% 
uh, an F. Some people say Robert Gwynn here. Kind of hard to give out grades before the first full cycle, but the staff looks really good on paper, and they've done pretty well with the 18 class so far. And, Bill, you brought up a good point here, and, and we've seen it. Nine of Dan Mullen's 10 assistant coaches have Florida or have coordinator level experience and all have experience in the sec so uh, you know that's a big big selling point uh and why this staff got an a from so many gator fans yeah everything we've seen out of this this staff so far everything is at least good we haven't heard the nightmare stories yet we've seen them aggressive we've seen helicopters we've seen hiring quality opponents or quality excuse me assistant coaches we've seen them starting to put up the infrastructure to succeed with their support staff and all these things Everything looks at least good. We don't know if it's going to be great yet. And so I understand when people say, ah, maybe Christian Robinson's a little young. Maybe Grantham's system, and maybe he's not the greatest coordinator. I think we can just about all agree that they're doing a really good job in all these moves. I can understand why some people are hesitant to give it an A. You, It's not like you've got, you know, just nine, you know, big dog recruiters there. But, you know, this is a pretty good-looking staff. Experience means a lot in the SEC. You've got guys that have a pretty good reputation as being up-and-coming recruiters. Uh, 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 Brian Johnson or Charlton Warren are both looked at as, uh, from what I've read, as guys that are up-and-comers. Uh, to me, I think one of the most telling things, I love the fact that people are saying, I wonder how long Larry Scott's going to stick around before he gets promoted. Yeah. I wonder how long uh, Brian Johnson's going to stick around before he gets promoted. You know, then hopefully Chris Robinson turns out to be an up-and-comer. So, you know, I like the fact that you got to mix a, a really strong base of experience. You know, one or two young guys there that are up and comers, a lot of coordinator experience. For me, somewhere between an A minus and a B plus, and we'll see. Yeah. Well, and one reason I like it is I don't mind the guys he brought from Mississippi State. I don't mind Greg Knox. I don't mind Hevesy. I don't mind Gonzalez because, look, there's less of a guessing game. There's less of the having to figure out the language. There's less of, figuring out what Dan Mullen expects from you. These guys know coming in what Dan Mullen expects from them. There's not, not as much guessing going on, and they can really hit the ground running when it comes to recruiting and when it comes to hitting the field uh, and, and spring practice when they get that going. And Nick Savage as well, they know how he works in strength and conditioning. So they can hit the ground running from the staff he brought over from Mississippi State over to Florida, and I really think that can speed things up just a little bit. Yeah, let me let me say one thing real quick. And I, I keep hearing this thing about Brad Davis pop up. And I, you know, I think Brad Davis was a good hire for 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 McElwain. And, and we're about John Hevesy as a recruiter. And yeah, we're about to find out. I, I really want to see Hevesy hold on to one of these blue chip linemen, whether it's Garage or Fair or whatever. But even if he doesn't, that guy is a proven SEC level offensive line coach that was part of Florida's national title programs and some good offensive lines. We know he can get it done. Brad Davis is a guy that had experience at East Carolina, James Madison, and North Texas. And yes, he had a pretty good relationship, but there is no evidence to suggest he was going to land William Barnes. We could be in the same position with Richard Garage as we are now because Clemson is coming around and we could be in the same position with Nicholas Petit Fair. I think it's ridiculous to say that it was a mistake to let him go based on what we've seen so far. I think that was a good hire to bring Hevesy in. He's a guy that is a proven SEC offensive line coach. Uh, and to your point, Dave, the continuity matters. And that's actually – so 
it's a good thing when your assistants are getting promoted, but all of that coordinator experience, that, that would be why I'd have it in the B range, is all that coordinator experience means a lot of those guys are going to leave and you're going to lose some continuity over the course of the next year or so. And so that would be my worry with it. But at the same time, I mean, what are you trying to do? I mean, you're trying to rebuild a program over the next year or two, and those guys are going to help you do that. And really, if they can help you make, I mean, you know, if the offense puts up 35 points a game next year, there's not going to be any problem recruiting offensive talent to Florida. It's only if they put up 22 that they're going to need, you know, that they're going to need elite recruiters. I think a lot of times the, you know, you obviously need people who are building relationships and in people's ear and things like that. And the recruiting leads to those teams that can put up 35 points. But if they can take what they've got and put up, you know, put up real improvement on the offense on the offensive side, and probably a little bit of improvement on the defensive side as well. I mean, that's going to sell the program itself. So I've got it at a B. Um, I, 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 I'm a little bit concerned about the coordinators just having that many guys, though I think it's a good thing for 2018. And then, uh, and, and then we'll see. I think a lot of it'll be, you know, the proof is going to be in the pudding on 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 next Wednesday, based on who comes in. I mean, if 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 they pull in 13 blue chips next week and that's the final count, well, you can't say anything bad about the staff because it's the best any staff has done yeah. since 2001 or whatever it is. I mean, so I, I think at that point you got to bump that up to an A. Good deal, good deal, guys. That was a good one. Yeah, we, we forgot our birthday shout out there. <laughs> no, no, no. I was going, I was going there. <laughs> uh, yeah, Andres Rodriguez, longtime supporter of the show. Happy birthday! Uh, we reached out to us and uh, said his birthday was, I think, it would be tomorrow on Thursday. So uh, definitely happy birthday to him. So hopefully he's listening to it at the gym on his birthday, and, that, and it, yeah. can, it can, can reach him. The good news is he's got to listen to the entire show to get there. So. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and, and another shout out, Bill. It's been a year since you've been on Gators Breakdown, man. Yeah, man, you're right. It has, and I just got a uh, notification on Twitter that I've been on there a year, and I was like, man. Oh, uh, really? I, I I just thought about it mid show, so I had to go back and look at the day, but it was January 29th last year. So yeah, man, um, I, a half million. Uh, uh, retention bonus was nice of you, Dave. I, <laughs> I can't believe you gave me that big of a check, man. <laughs> Will, did I you have, get one of those? <laughs> I have some complaints. Oh, <laughs> I would like man. to lodge a complaint. <laughs> Don't start, start that rumor. <laughs> <laughs> Bitcoin's getting cheap, isn't it? <laughs> oh, hey, it's been a fun year. I think we have some good stuff going on next week. We're going to talk about next week. We do. We do. I have uh, hopefully a, a big announcement coming uh, in the next few days uh, or so. Uh, some some big things coming uh, with the podcast. Gators breakdown uh, getting bigger and better uh, out there. So uh, if anything, Mar Rutledge is leaving fine bombs. He's doing it. <laughs> <laughs> if anything, uh, it would just uh, it would let more people hear. Uh, what we get to talk about here on Gators Breakdown. So, uh, you know, we're looking forward to that. Uh, and uh, like I said, look for uh, next week. Uh, but guys, uh, thank you again for, uh, for joining. And I think, uh, Hey, look, we got about, uh, we got about a week and uh, this week's going to go and fly by like crazy. And uh, with signing day, we're going to wake up Wednesday morning and it's going to be uh, shopping for the groceries. Yeah. May the faxes be with us. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so Bill and Will, you can find Bill on Twitter at RealBSykes and Will Miles on Twitter at WillMilesSEC. And you can find his work at ReadAndReaction.com. I'm your host of Gators Breakdown, David Waters. You can find me on Twitter at GatorDave underscore SCC. Guys and girls up there, thanks for listening to Gators Breakdown.